This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's enough to drive Zoomers right around the bend. The question of how to treat older drivers is stirring up a storm. First, there was that snitch line set up by police in Sudbury. Then, Ontario's Human Rights Tribunal ruled that it's just fine to charge older drivers more. Discrimination or public safety? We'll tackle that coming up. Plus, a diagnosis of cancer is a traumatic, life-changing event. On top of the pain and the fear, patients and their families have to wrap their heads around a very complex disease and get through the maze of our medical system. CarePath is a company that helps with cancer navigation, and today I'll talk with founder Dr. Denny DiPetrillo. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It sounds like something out of science fiction. A Japanese robot suit designed to give the elderly and the disabled more mobility has been given a global safety certificate, and that means it can now be rolled out worldwide. The hybrid assistive limb, or HAL, is essentially an exoskeleton from the waist down. Two robotic legs respond to muscle impulses and help support users, slowly propelling them forward as they go for a walk. The suit, designed by Cyberdyne, has already been in use in over 150 Japanese hospitals and other welfare facilities. You can find pictures of it online. Well, we've often heard that 40 is the new 30. Well, now scientists say 72 is actually the new 30. A study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences looked at men in Japan and Sweden where life expectancy is longest. It found that modern 72-year-olds have the same chance of dying as 30-year-olds did back when the earliest humans were hunter-gatherers. If 72 is the new 30, what does that make 114? That's the age of the woman who is now officially the world's oldest woman. From her home in Osaka, Japan, Mizao Okawa said she is very happy to receive the recognition and a certificate from Guinness World Records. As for her secret for longevity, she said it was to watch out for one's health. Okawa, who will turn 115 on Tuesday, was born March 5, 1898, and now lives in a nursing home. It's a cookbook to raise awareness for prostate cancer, and now it's won a big international prize. A group of Saskatchewan grandmothers called the Breast Friends have actually donated close to $1.4 million for cancer causes through sales of their series of six cookbooks. Well, one of those books, Breast Wishes for the Men in Our Lives, won a Gourmand World Cookbook Award in Paris just recently, beating an entry 
by U.S. First Lady Michelle Obama. Here's one of the authors, Ann Reynolds. We decided to do a cookbook for the men in our lives because we wanted to donate money to prostate cancer. It's uh, a cancer that is a bit lower in funds than uh, breast cancer. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It was a bad week for Zoomers behind the wheel. Ontario's Human Rights Tribunal told a 92-year-old driver he had no case when he complained that his insurance company was charging him $250 more than his 62-year-old daughter just because of his age. And police in Sudbury are not backing off their plan to use Crime Stoppers as a snitch line where citizens can report erratic older drivers. What the intent was, was if it came to our attention that the person that was being complained about was a senior, we would have a better, uh, more thoughtful approach to dealing with those individuals and not from an enforcement policing perspective. That's Sudbury Police Chief Frank Elsner explaining himself. Because instead of ringing off the hook with reports of geriatric joyriders, most of the calls that came in were complaints about age discrimination. I sat down with Ezra Hauer, an 80-year-old driver who is also a retired engineering professor with a specialty in road safety, and Susan Eng, CARP's vice president of advocacy. Susan, it wasn't a complete victory, but that backlash did accomplish something. The backlash was able to just stop the Sudbury police from taking a bad idea and spreading it across the province. What they were attempting to do was to get family members who were uncomfortable talking to a parent or spouse about their bad driving to actually call crime stoppers to anonymously report them to the police. And then the police would come to your home and, you know, talk it over with you. And, you know, it sounds benign enough when you talk about it. But if you imagine, from the senior's point of view, having the police knock on your door to talk to you about your driving is a pretty intimidating event. So, you know, the backlash when it became public was uh, universal, I would say. The police have apologized, and they are reconsidering their plans to roll it out across the province. Ezra, you're 80? I was 80 last December. Oh, okay. And uh, I had to go through the 80-plus program that Ontario institutes for for people who are 80 years or older. You say that you have proof that older drivers are just as safe as everyone else. The misconception is that senior drivers are unsafe drivers. The fact is that senior drivers per driver have about half as many crashes as everybody else. And when measured per kilometer, they are about the same as everybody else. The misconception arises that people publish statistics on fatal crash involvements. And here the, the relevant fact is that older people are about four times as likely to die. Isn't it true, though, that as we get older, our reaction times are slower? And I know older drivers who say, "Okay, I don't see that well at night. I'm not going to drive at night. But not everybody is smart enough to do that. So shouldn't the state have some say? Well, in fact, the first point, you're absolutely right. When we poll CARP members, all of them tell us that, look, if I can't drive under certain conditions at night or on major highways, I won't. There's a lot of self-regulation. 
So what we're targeting is the small minority of people who are recalcitrant or who don't know that they're bad drivers. And that's a target that we can look at, but we have to have fair measures of their competency. And perhaps something that we're recommending, that everybody have access to remedial training that deal with you know, reflex issues or mobility issues. You can't look over to check your blind spot and so on. Those are things that can be accommodated. Ezra, what do you think about that? I mean, I know that one of the things that people find the hardest in families is that conversation with a parent or an elder to say, look, you know, we really don't think you should be driving anymore. There is a serious problem which needs to be dealt with. That's the problem of advanced dementia. At which point the person cannot be trusted to make responsible decisions anymore. What is irresponsible, in my opinion, is to hold in every year in Ontario more than 100,000 old drivers for testing and a large proportion of those whose driving privileges are curtailed are curtailed for no good reason whatsoever. We are speaking now about the probability of a future crash. There is nothing in medical training that allows you to assess that probability. This is why many of those whose licenses are taken away or restricted will be just like you and me, normal drivers, safe drivers. The cost of this can be horrific. You have studies that show that people who lose their license go prematurely to old age homes, die prematurely, lose their independence, get into depressions. None of these costs are taken into account by the procedures presently in place by the Ministry of Transport Ontario. Now, Susan, what are you advocating? Do you think that uh, the ministry should stop (coughs) testing people after the age of 80? Well, I think we want them to change their testing regimen, that they don't automatically only focus on those over the age of 80, or at any age in particular, they should focus on competency testing. And the road test is still the gold standard after all the technology that we have as to whether or not somebody can drive safely. For every 85-plus old driver that is killed. There are 20 drivers in the 16 to 24 category. That's where the problem is. The older drivers are a minuscule part of the problem. And everybody is focusing on them because of the deep-rooted prejudice that we started our conversation about. Okay, I think that sums it up very nicely. Ezra, Susan, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, go to carp.ca. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Being diagnosed with cancer is scary, confusing, and often requires tough decisions. One company offers a special kind of help. In just a moment, I'll speak with Dr. Denny DiPetrillo, founder of CarePath. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. It strikes like a bolt out of the blue. That's what it feels like when you or someone you love suddenly faces a diagnosis of cancer. 
All at once, you're plunged into a world of hospitals and doctors, tests and treatments, and a lot of anxious waiting. It happened to me in 2006 when I found out I had breast cancer. And in addition to the shock and the fear, the hardest part was having to take in a lot of complicated medical information and use it to make critical decisions about my treatment. Luckily, I had help from CarePath, a service that offers cancer navigation. Dr. Denny DePetrillo founded the company after 30 years as a surgical oncologist, and he dropped by to mark CarePath's 10th anniversary. Denny, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, why did you start CarePath? I started it because um, we needed an adjunct to the system. I've been in cancer care for 40 years now, and believe me, the quality of care in Ontario and Canada is probably second to none. However, it's under a finite budget. There's not enough time to communicate completely with the patient and their family about the whole extent of their disease, the diagnosis, the treatment, the consequences, and everything else. There is just not enough time to do so because there's more new patients that you see every day. Most patients require a multidisciplinary approach to care. That is surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, sometimes hormonal management or a combination of all types. As you go through these vertical worlds of treatment, you get different information from different individuals, even though at the top the quality is very, very good. So patients and their family become confused. Some become frightened. So what we decided to do was provide the horizontal program in a vertical world of treatment. And that's why we started the company CarePath. One of the things that I found, and this is as somebody who is used to taking in a lot of new information, often on a deadline, was that when they're talking about you and a life or death situation, it's very hard to absorb it. Most patients, and I think myself would probably be the same, is that once you hear the word cancer, you really don't listen to anything else because in your mind is, uh, is fear, doubt, because the unknown really bothers a lot of people. When I first came to see you, there were a number of things that I was really uneasy about. Number one, I'm not plugged into the medical world, so I needed reassurance that the doctors who were treating me were good and that I was getting the best kind of treatment. Is, is that what a lot of uh, your patients at CarePath are looking for? They are. Uh, they're looking for one person to give them information support all the way through the duration of their cancer treatment. As it changes, some of the complications they go through, what to anticipate, uh, the surgeon or they're going to see, the radiation on calls they're going to see, what is the team like, questions to ask the surgeon or the radiation and medical oncologist before they see them about their type of treatment. This is all done uh, by one of our oncology nurses. With our oncology nurse, uh, she gets to know the patient, talk to the family, understand the mechanics of the family itself, and actually becomes a friend and a uh, companion of the, of the patient herself as they go through it. At an appointment, they would tell you something, well, you're probably going to be at your lowest seven days after the treatment until 10 days, and this and this is going to happen, and you listen like da-da-da-da-da, and you forget about it until suddenly until it happens. Right. It happens. Right. And it's more comforting and, and probably easier to be able to call on the nurse oncologist from CarePath than to try and get the nurse in the hospital. 
It's the same thing. It's not that your primary caregivers don't tell you, but you probably need to be told more than once. Yeah, I think repetition is the most important part in terms of the knowledge of what is happening. And just to call that same nurse all the time reinforces, I think, some of the problems you may be having, the reassurance. If you need to have some information on the latest research, she'll find it. If you want to know what are the complications of uh, some of the chemotherapy, she'll give it to you. It's an entirely different, it's an adjunct really to our, our system as we are now. Now, right now, this type of service is only available if uh, your employer has it as a kind of insurance, right? Yes. We're covering about 650,000 lives at the present time. Uh, we have uh, several companies that we, uh, we are with, and we're very proud of uh, what we do because it is needed. Cancer is different. It's a much more unique disease than something else because it affects the whole family. Okay. Dr. Danny DiPetrillo, thanks so much. Thank you. Go to carepath.ca for more information. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. I asked what was the mystery. That's the king of Calypso, Mr. Harry Belafonte. The singer and activist turned 86 on Friday. In just a moment, we'll return with some of his music. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, the Emmy Award-winning Carol Kane stars as the great actress Betty Davis. The Lying Lesson is in previews at the Atlantic Theatre Company on West 20th Street. To the Windy City, where art lovers can enjoy a special exhibition of more than 50 works of late Roman and early Byzantine pieces lent by the British Museum. It's at the Art Institute of Chicago's Gallery 154. In London, see the classical musical A Chorus Line. It's at the Palladium Theater in London's West End. And in Rome, retrace the long journey between East and West from the 7th to the 14th centuries. On the Silk Road, ancient pathways between East and West is at the Exhibition Palace. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. That's the King of Calypso, music icon and activist Harry Belafonte. On Friday, he celebrated his 86th birthday. Belafonte is most famous for his career as a musician, but he's also well known for being very active in humanitarian causes. He was a confidant of Martin Luther King Jr. and provided lots of financial support for the civil rights movement. He's also a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF, He's known for his support of awareness for HIV-AIDS in Africa, and he was an early advocate for prostate cancer screening after he beat the disease in 1996. Earlier in February, he was awarded the NAACP's highest honor, the Spingham Medal. Today, we celebrate his 86th birthday with the biggest hit from his musical career, the Banana Boat Song. Is that 
was Harry Belafonte with the Banana Boat Song. The musician and humanitarian activist celebrated his 86th birthday on Friday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks so much for joining me today. Please come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bendry. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.